This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Nigel Travis is executive chairman of Duncan Brands. His new book is called The Challenge Culture, Why the Most Successful Organizations Run on Pushback. Nigel served as CEO of Duncan Brands from 2009 through July 2018. His distinctive human-centered perspective on leadership and management, a view that's essential in today's complex and diverse global organizations, took root early in his career when he was a human resources manager. Prior to Duncan Brands, he served as president and COO at Blockbuster and president and CEO at Papa John's. We talk about both of those experiences in this episode. In 2017, he became owner of Leighton Orient Football Club, a troubled professional soccer team in England that presents a unique opportunity to implement his challenge culture strategy. In this episode, we talk about how organizations and employees thrive in today's hyper-competitive world when there is a culture that supports questioning everything without disrespecting anyone, a civil culture of challenge. And we get into Nigel's perspective on how communication and crises at work affect people in other parts of their lives. So now, get set to listen to and learn from a seasoned leader who's seen it all in his decades of HR and C-suite responsibilities. It's Nigel Travis. Nigel, welcome. Hey, Stu. Uh, Good evening, and uh, thank you for such a nice introduction. Well, it's wonderful to have you here, and I appreciate your taking the time. So, uh, let, let's let's go back to one of the things I, I said in the introduction about your early years. You started out in human resources, and since then you've taken your your people oriented perspective into executive leadership roles. How has that background shaped your approach to executive leadership, and in, in a way that is perhaps distinctive? Um, well, firstly, uh, I went into human resources or personnel, as it was known at the very start of my career. I did one of these uh, vocational inventory mm-hmm. um, um, questionnaires that you fill in at school. Uh, I think that was when I was about 16. I did a degree that actually specialized in personnel management mm-hmm. as well as business studies. That was very unusual in those days. That was 1968 I started that. So I spent 20 years in in HR, and it it made me think about how we interact, how organizations are built. Um, And and probably the biggest thing I learned during that period is when I was with a company called Grand Metropolitan, which predominantly is a company called Diageo now, I worked with the then chairman, Alan Shepard, 
to write up his organizational philosophy. And right mm-hmm. at the heart of that was he wanted to explain how everyone had to challenge ideas, be totally dissatisfied with the status quo. Hmm. Uh, and, and I coined the phrase the challenge culture hmm. and I've used it ever since. Hmm. But in so that's been with you your whole your whole career. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it it has, and I've sort of changed it and learned from it as I go through. And I I made a a big change. It was only a big change for me in 91 when my then boss, another relatively well-known Brit called Barry Gibbons, who's written Mm -hmm. two or three books, he, uh, he suggested I went into general management. So I went into general management. And I think ever since, I've used the philosophy, I've refined it, and as you'll see in the book, it's, it's more than just about challenges, it's about how you communicate with people. Mm-hmm. It's about being very open. Um, but I've refined it, and I think I've refined it with some success through the companies you mentioned, Papa John's, Duncan, where we've obviously had a very good run. And uh, I'm just coming off a, a great win for my football team this afternoon. Ah. Uh, and, and we stand right at the top of our league. Uh, in the UK, and I'm just off to the UK tonight. That's uh, well, congratulations. So uh, I, I want to ask a lot more about that, but just uh, very quickly, are you hoping to? Uh, I know that recently your team was was relegated. Is that correct? Yeah, just to, I mean, I'll explain it. This may take slightly longer than your question, but um, most Americans don't quite get the tiered approach of English soccer. But as the Premier League, which you mentioned earlier, then as the Championship. Then there's League One, League Two, and then the National League, and below that, eight other uh, eight other levels. Um, we were in League One, you know, in 2014. We missed promotion to the Championship, in other words, the second tier by mm-hmm. a penalty kick. Mm. The club was then sold and bought by um, uh, an Italian group. Um, they did certainly the opposite of the challenge culture. They didn't let anyone challenge them. Hmm. Unfortunately, in the next uh, three years, the club went down two levels. Oh, wow. And, and we inherited a club with no bank account, no credit card processing, and worst of all, no players. So that was... <laughs> <laughs> that sounds that was, like a leadership challenge, if I ever heard yeah, one. Yeah, so we worked very hard on stability. Stability. I found a great partner called Tent, Kent Teague out of uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, and we're slowly building back up. Um, but it's... It's, it's going to be a long haul, but the key thing, yes. right from day one, we said the most important word was people, and we focused on that, and our whole culture is about people, and integrated in that culture is, as you said earlier, the challenge culture that's uh, mentioned in my book. Well, uh, again, I, I have a number of things that I want to ask you about the, the football club, but let me let me first turn back to the book and, and also this concept of the challenge culture. You, you said a couple of times that you've refined it over time. What's the biggest change or the most important thing that you've learned about the concept of what you call the challenge culture uh, over these last few decades of refining it, working it in different organizational contexts? Um, yeah, that's a great question. No one's asked me that before. So uh, uh, what I would say is two or three things. One is the, the lifeblood of any organization is constant communication. But I think what I've done in the last few years is realize how important it is to stay in touch with people right down the organization. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I describe in the book is a thing called coffee chats, which is effectively something I've done at Dunkin', whereby I will get a diagonal slice of 
functions. Mm-hmm. I will get predominantly young people, but they're all below director level, and we'll sit in the room. Mm-hmm. We will discuss. It's not a question and answer for Nigel. It's a discussion. Mm-hmm. And the amount I've learned, and hopefully they've learned as well, has been immense. Well, plus you can you could get a ready supply of coffee at a great place I know called Dunkin' Donuts to, to well, go along with those yeah. coffee chats. Yeah, it's funny. I'm sitting here with my Dunkin' coffee right now, so <laughs> a, a nice plug. It's but, good stuff. And, and one of the reasons people like working at our place, you get free ice cream, oh, yeah? free donuts, oh, right. free bagels, and free coffee. <laughs> but so, so how do you, in, in those diagonal slice conversations with people who are looking up and saying, wow, there's the CEO, I, I'm not going to say a word to him because I'm afraid that if I say the wrong thing, it'll hurt my career prospects. How do you make people feel the opposite of that? Like they are open and invited and unafraid to tell you that, well, you're wrong or that, you know, here's something you hadn't thought about that you should know. How do you help people to feel that way? I think it's all about creating a safe environment. And and you asked a question about my HR background. One of the things I did, uh, uh, a great American company called Parker Hannipin, I did lots of training. Uh Uh-huh. Um, And the one thing I remember of every training program, we talked about creating a safe environment. So as you say, you have you have to put people at ease. You have to make sure that they they feel that they can say whatever they say without any repercussions. So one of the things that I do is we ask everyone to introduce themselves, but I deliberately don't remember individuals um, and we write the notes up in a way that we talk about subjects and topics. We don't talk about, you know, Harry said this or mm-hmm. Joan said that. We we talk very generally. But I try and create an environment where it's a discussion. It's not one person dominating it. And and as a result of that, we've changed policies. We changed, for example, in the book, our family leave policy as a result of hearing it. Um, we're, we've changed our policy about commuting out of Boston because we're in the suburbs mm-hmm. as a result of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you can make people very safe but i think the biggest thing you can do is build a reputation that people want to come to those sessions they're enthusiastic about it and they spread the word to other people that it is a safe environment well what makes it fun what makes somebody leave that session saying you know that nigel guy's all right and i i said what was on my mind and i feel good about it how how do you get people to what are the things that you say and do to aside from depersonalizing the commentary Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the things I've always said, we, we work in a fun industry. I mean, mm-hmm. buying donuts and coffee and ice cream should be fun. And I try and encourage people, and I'll have little quips. I, 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 I couldn't tell you what they are right now. They have to be spontaneous. But I try to, try to make the whole environment very relaxed. Uh-huh. Yeah, I try and make it fun. I try not to make it too serious. I'm um, As a Brit, I'm naturally self-deprecating. Um and and I think by being self-deprecating, it encourages people to challenge me. Yes. That self-deprecating piece is so important, isn't it? Because if you are demonstrating that you are truly humble, then it, it enables other people to feel trusting in your presence, doesn't it? There's no, there's no doubt about it. And, uh, um, I mean, I think you you want people to give feedback to others. You also want to receive feedback you want people to understand that you're listening. Uh, and and I always remember in my early days at Duncan, I went to a meeting in New York with a bunch of franchisees. Uh, and they said to me, so, so we had this meeting 
And I asked afterwards the regional director who was there, I said, so how'd that go? He said, oh, they were really impressed. I said, well, why? I didn't do anything different. Mm -hmm. You you took notes. They realized you were serious because you took notes. I mean, a simple thing Mm -hmm. reinforces that you're actively listening. You're not just sitting there having a discussion. You're taking notes and trying to learn. And I think that's very important because... Because I think if people believe you're at, you're really effectively listening, that builds confidence and it, and it does open up the communication line. Well, you know, both the note-taking and then responding with, as you said earlier, changes in the family leave policy or your, the very location of your headquarters, uh, you know, acting on recommendations builds credibility like nothing else. Well, uh, absolutely. And, you know, one, I mean, the challenge culture is actually about performance improvement Mm -hmm. and one of the things that's great about a franchise business there are no more challenging people than franchisees these are people who put their life's money into a business and to a brand and they usually have a lot of opinions and i mean a lot underline that a few times Uh, and and what you need to do is to try and capture those opinions in an organized fashion Mm -hmm. and if you're not seen to be listening if you're not seen to be paying attention you'll soon find out and one of the things that I truly believe we've done well at Duncan is, is, is to capture those listening skills, work well with the franchisees. And my successor, who we spent nearly two years planning that he could succeed me, mm-hmm. I think is even better than I am in terms of listening to franchisees. He's got instant credibility because he works at McDonald's. He's got instant credibility because he works He's worked in restaurants and fully gets it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the, the key thing is the ability to listen. Why do you think it's necessary for businesses in the world today to be, as you said, uh, flexible and egalitarian in, in your writings? Why, why is that essential today, even more so than in the past? Well, I, I think there's many reasons. Um, and I, it's funny, I always kind of, start with a slide in my presentations about the book on why is the challenge culture relevant now uh-huh. and, and there's a whole bunch of things I mean the, the first thing I say is the world is changing at a rate we've never seen uh, and there's all kinds of videos you can find on the internet that demonstrate the speed of change and and recognize I started work in 1970 I reckon what I a week is more than I did a year in 1970 so the world is moving at a dramatic pace we all know why social media is technology which i truly believe as a 68 year old uh, is is something that has been truly positively revolutionary uh, i think it makes you more efficient it gives you access to so much more information so i think it's important that you have to stay up to date and again i come back to listening the second thing is clearly we've had some mega changes happened in the last few years. Um, uh, LBGT, uh, the Me Too movement, uh, you could say, uh, depending on how you look at it, unruly government examples. They're all things that I think have demonstrated the need, again, to work very hard on the culture in an Mm organisation. And an organisation, by the way, could be a government, it could be a not-for-profit, it could be a football club, it could mm-hmm. be a business, it could be a department in a company, mm-hmm. it could be anything. Uh, so I think there's a lot of pressures that certainly didn't exist back in 1970, 
but at the end of the day, we live in a very competitive world. Uh, we, we live in a world, uh, take Duncan, our two biggest competitors, uh, everyone knows, are McDonald's and Starbucks. Right. Um, but we also have convenience chains. Uh, we've got all kinds of local chains. Uh, coffee, with its high margin, creates an opportunity for all kinds of brands to jump into our space. And I've been very lucky because I've competed against great companies. But the answer is why the challenge culture works now is the world is probably more competitive than it's ever been. And you need to have a culture that ensures you come up with the, the best solutions to any issue. And at the same time, constantly challenging yourself and the organization to do better. And you can't do that, right, unless you've got people willing to tell you where you are wrong, that the emperor has no clothes. And, and so that that is the key because uh, in most organizations, people are afraid to speak truth to power. Uh, so the challenge culture is really all about that. Why, why did you answer yes to Joanna's question uh, uh, <laughs> uh, with respect to your writing the book, The Challenge Culture? Okay, so just to explain who Joanna is, she's mm-hmm. my wife. Uh, she's a wonderful, bright lawyer who's been a wonderful support to me. But she is a person who is the ultimate in challenging. Um, and, I mean, because she used to be a prosecutor and has spent her whole career in, in the courts, uh, she asked very pointed questions. So she asked, okay, why, have you, why are you writing this book? What have you got to say? Uh, that was a great question. Uh, and to be honest, I never set out really to write a book, but a number of people suggested I should bring together these ideas uh, and at the same time tell some stories about my career. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought that answering the question why I should write it uh, was a great start. And, 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 and it made me go back, and this story is told probably in more detail in the book. When I was young and like 15, 16, I worked for my dad in the factory he had. And I used to finish all the work he gave me. And uh, he uh, I, I, he would come in and say, well, why aren't you working? I'd say, i finished. Uh, and then he'd say, well, why can't you look busy? And I'd say, why? And his answer to every question, every time I said why, was because why is a crooked letter. Now, I actually believe just the opposite. What? You should keep probing. Uh, and, and my dad, who was a classic entrepreneur, didn't like the challenge. I mean, he was a great entrepreneur, but he didn't like the challenge. So ah, why? Now I get it, your it, lifelong obsession with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a, Keep I mean, going. It's interesting. My, my brother went into the family business. I didn't. Oh. And, and I think going back to your first question, I think one of the things I learned is I thought business could be um, – more integrated, there could be more involvement mm. uh, of all the employees. And it wasn't uh, just one way, which is from the top down. And, and you might describe my whole approach as anti-hierarchical. I get it. <laughs> yes, well, it's, it's a way of, 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 make, of, of diminishing the negative impact that hierarchy can have on the suppression of ideas, right? You're, you're not calling for an end to hierarchy, you're instead looking for ways to ensure that the benefits of hierarchy, which are you know efficiency and organization, don't don't wash away uh, with it as they usually as it usually does, 
all the good stuff that you need to get from the bottom looking up, right? Yeah, I mean, most, well, most things get filtered from the bottom. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if someone says something, oh, I don't like that, and it doesn't go up. One of the things I've tried to do, and the coffee chat's the best example, but obviously working with franchisees is another example because they're the key interface in a franchise organization with the customer. If you talk to them directly, you hear a lot. You don't have to accept it all. Mm-hmm. You have to think about it all. And, and, and that's the whole point. You know, can this make us a better company? Can this make us a better organization? And can we compete better by having all this, uh, all, all this direct feedback, or as it says in the title, pushback? So, so Joanna asked why, and what, what in, in brief, is your answer? What is it, what's the main thing you want people to take away from your wonderful new book? Okay, so uh, I think it's constantly challenged the status quo, but as you said right, in the start, right at the start, in a very respectful manner, its ability to challenge all processes, ideas um, from all angles. Um, and, and the way I describe it to people is imagine you're a person in an organization. And again, it doesn't have to be a company. Right. It doesn't have to be a CEO. And this is an important point. This book wasn't written for CEOs. It was written for anyone in any organization. So if you're in the middle of an organization, you're going to have bosses now. You should encourage your boss to challenge you because, by the way, many bosses don't challenge their people. You mm-hmm. should try and find a way to encourage them. You should obviously challenge your subordinates, which most people find a strange thing to do because they're, if you like, driven by the hierarchy. But you should also get your colleagues, um, your peers, to challenge you as well. Mm-hmm. So it opens up, but you do it in a civil way. And I think it's, it, it's truly helpful in times of change, which I think if you ask most people, in most organizations now, there's more change than they've ever seen previously. And you need, the, that, you need that feedback coming at you from all angles. What's the, what's exactly. the, what's the thing that, that your book will help people overcome as you know, many people are inhibited or afraid or concerned about asking for people to challenge them? How do you help people overcome that natural inhibition? Uh, I, I think you're right. A lot of people find it very difficult. Uh, and and my suggestion is that you start, start perhaps by challenging yourself. Hmm. You know, you go away and say, so what did I do well today? What could I have done better? And then perhaps find a friendly person. And, and I think if you're built, again, it comes back to confidence. If you build up the confidence of doing it with two or three people, you can do it with more. Mm. And it's interesting, as I was writing the book, I talked to people at publishers and all kinds of other places, and they say, yeah, I've been trying some of this, and I think it works. And, 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 and guess what? The people you ask to challenge you, and I've, I've not measured this, I'm not a psychologist or <laughs> a scientist in any way, I think you'll find they feel better about you because you ask. And, and one story I tell mm. in the book is uh, I've done 50 years of football, or as we say in America, soccer coaching. I still coach two teams, and I ask them for their opinions, and they're 11-year-olds and 13-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And guess what? It really helps them understand what they're supposed to be doing. Say, say more about that, Nigel. How does it help well, them? I, I think because they... Okay, so get example from last week. We started a new season, so we got some new players. So we talked about how we were going to be set up, the formation we are going to use, 
And so I encourage the players who've been on the team last year to tell the others what, for instance, the defensive players did, the defensive midfield player, what he was supposed to do. And, and what it does, it makes people think about the roles. It, makes, it helps them remember. And they feel, I, I, I would suggest, more committed mm-hmm. rather than me just standing there and saying, OK, the defence does this and these are the key roles. Defensive midfield player does that. It really, I mean, it, it's classic involvement. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a whole bunch of psychological there is. going back <laughs> to, to support that. You'll know far, far better than I do. Yes, there is a long, long-standing literature that, uh, in, in organizational psychology from the beginnings of our field that uh, this is one of the essential findings. The more you engage people in decision-making and have their voice heard, the more committed they are to the outcome and, and to following through on, on uh, realizing uh, that decision and bringing it to life. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about um, your hiring practices, just briefly. Do you hire for people who are able to you know, engage in the give and take of, of pushback? Is that something you you screen for, or is it something that you try to teach, or both? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think what I'd say is I try and set the in an organization, I try and set the parameters of the challenge culture, and it does take some time, and it took probably a year at Duncan, to be honest, um, where people would learn to push back. And obviously, you need the right individuals. Uh, now, sometimes it happens. Uh, I know you're going to talk about Papa John's and Duncan, but at Papa John's, I went there, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't change one individual, and they got it very quickly. At Duncan, I changed most of the management team very quickly. Oh. Um, so so I found that by bringing in people who really got the challenge culture, everyone else jumped in. But you're always going to have different personalities. There's going to be more extrovert people. There's going to be people who are more naturally challenging than others. Some people are very introverted and don't like speaking out. But the way I get over that is by asking them specifically, hey, whatever, whatever their name is, what mm-hmm. do you think of this issue? And then try and get others to challenge backwards and forwards. Um, whether I actually recruit, I think I recruit people who you know, are going to push back and uh, stand up to me. I, I think one of the mistakes so many people make they want people just to listen to them, and they don't like people challenging back. You need strong mm-hmm. people working for you, and I think the sign of a great leader is to have strong people working for you. Mm-hmm. They may be difficult to uh, manage and lead as a result of that because they are strong, but usually you get better results with the best quality people. Mm-hmm. And I think the best quality people are people who have very strong views on things and are willing to challenge and debate. And it doesn't mean... I'm always right or I'm always wrong, it means you have a debate and hopefully come to a great conclusion. And, of course, you can still care for each other and, indeed, even love each other and still argue, right? Well, yeah. My, I mean, my current CFO, uh, even though she doesn't report to me now because, as you said, I stepped down as CEO, mm-hmm. I mean, she and I have had many strong debates and arguments, but we leave the room and get on with life. I mean, that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 I I think people have to show passion. I mean I know it's said by a lot of people. I truly believe passion drives business because if you're not passionate about something, you shouldn't be involved in that business. Agreed. I've been very I've been very lucky. I've been with companies 
that I've loved working for and organizations I've loved working with. And, and it's interesting. I've been uh, on 11 different boards in my life uh, and about five different public boards. Uh, I haven't actually counted up recently, but I think it's five. Uh, and and I, I think you have to be passionate about the business. And again, it comes back. If you're not passionate and not willing to think and challenge, uh, you shouldn't be involved. So what's it's, the, it's all part of participating. What's the most important aspect of, of being effective in using the power of inquiry? I think answering, I think it's two things. It's doing it in a civil way that's positive. And, and I talk a lot in the book about open questions uh, and, you know, the power of open questions, letting people think through things. Very often people will come to what is the better solution just by asking them some questions. You know, why did we do this? Why have you, you know, what is the strategy to get to a particular goal? And, and I find as a, as sitting on boards is interesting because it's so easy to be negative, but it's so easy <laughs> to say, well, this is the way we do it. You have to do it our way. <laughs> it's, it's your way or the highway. I've always found it's much better just to ask a question very nicely. So I think the first thing is be civil. The second question, the second thing is to ask as many open questions as you can, because what you want is the best solution. And the individual controlling the dialogue, be it the CES, the CEO or the leader of the organization, will, will probably get there without any help from you. It's, mm-hmm. it's you're aiding the process. You're like a facilitator. But you have to be active, right? You have to be yeah. actively inquiring. It's not a passive game. It's, it's one where you have to kind of take the lead and really invite people in, especially those introverts who, who need more uh, encouragement to come forward. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I talked earlier in the first half of the show about, you know, the coffee chats I run. Mm-hmm. You're always going to have someone who sits there, and I'll often say, okay, so Gene or Tom or whatever their name is, you know, have you got any thoughts on it? But make it a nice, easy question. Mm-hmm. You know, someone said something, have they got a view that is different from that? Um, and, and one thing I always do, I always, uh, in nearly every coffee chat, I would ask people how long they've been with the company. At Duncan, we're mm-hmm. fortunate we've got people who've been there 36, 37 years, and then we have newcomers. I always ask the newcomers, so what's it like here? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what did you feel when you came in, and how can we improve? I mean, some of these questions aren't difficult, but you end up finding some really, really helpful and useful information. And, and what's especially good about that practice, Nigel, is that when people are new, that's when they have the freshest ideas, when they're shocked by their entry into the new culture, as everyone is when they enter a new organization. And you really want to capture that at the moment of entry. Uh, so it's a great question to ask of, of new entrants especially. Nigel, I want to turn our attention to a slightly different subject, one that's at the heart of what work and life is all about. And that's your philosophy and practice with respect to investing in the whole person of the employee. How do you go about ensuring the well-being of people at work, people who work in your organizations, and beyond work? Well, I think, yeah, I think that's a really interesting subject because, as I said right at the start, work is harder and faster than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. I mean, how people keep up to date with everything that's going on is crazy. Uh, I was talking to someone over the weekend that, Back in 1988, uh, I went away for a three-week vacation. There was no way of keeping up with me or or telling me what was going on 
apart from a phone call because faxes were still relatively new. <laughs> there was really no extensive email, particularly in Portugal, where I was. And I used to get back and the pile of paper on my desk was probably two feet high. Um, well, the world's very different now, and most people try and keep up. So I think you have to try and create balance in, in life. And I know that's, that sounds trite, but I've, I've always at Duncan been very clear with everyone that I expect some kind of balance. I expect them, you know, ideally to think about their bodies and to stay healthy. We have a gym at work. Um, I try and set an example. You know, I work out for three hours a week. Um, uh, and I mixed it up with, you know, personal trainer, running, mm -hmm. and other things. Uh, I try and encourage people to read a lot. Um, I try and encourage people to have a flexible um, work habits. In other words, uh, I try and encourage people, if they have to work from home, they work from home. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not always possible depending on the job. Of course. Uh, and, and I think, you know, you also occasionally need to take an an easier lap. I had a boss once and he had this uh, great phrase. When you're running a long race, you have to put in a slow lap occasionally. Mm -hmm. You can't work flat out all the time. So I, I, I think you have to think of the individual, but a major part of the individual is to surround them with the kind of fun that we have at Duncan. Now, it's generally a fun place to work. Nearly everyone comes and is always impressed by how friendly and and, and the free food that I mentioned earlier, all that kind of stuff. It's a fantastic place to work. But I think right from the top, you have to have the right human values to recognize that there's more to life than work. I mean, some people might describe me as a workaholic, but I, I do so many other things. I think I truly balance it out. And I try and encourage people to get that kind of balance well, because I, I, I truly think you'll achieve more. You'll think better at work by doing other things. Why would some yeah, people then call you a workaholic? Yeah, because I think, you know, a lot of people think, you know, I'm up early in the morning, I'm working. I um, sometimes in meetings late at night. Mm -hmm. But in between, I do other things. I mean, ah. like today, I watch my English soccer team uh, on, you know, we stream all the games to the U.S. So I watched it. Um, I, I think you just have to mix up everything because the world is so fast. If you don't take that breather, uh, you don't give yourself the perspective to think properly about your job. You just can't keep pounding away. You can't I mean, keep it. It, 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 was, it. So what's been most important to you personally in, in the quest to find greater harmony uh, between your work and the rest of your life? What would you say is the, the most important aspect of your solution to that puzzle? Uh, I, I, I would say working out. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I talk a lot in the book about sleep. I probably don't get enough sleep, but I'm a great napper. Sometimes. As am I. Let's talk you napping, should. Nigel. What's your napping yeah. strategy? Uh, well, I just sit down and have a nap for like 15 minutes, usually in the afternoon. Exactly. And it's, ama and it's amazing. It is amazing. How, is it how different you feel. You wake up with new ideas. You look at things differently. And, and one of the things I think I learned a long time ago is perspective. If I'm in a meeting and you're trying to grind through a problem, which we all do, sometimes we'll just get, walk up, walk out the meeting, go down to the restroom and come back again. And it's amazing. You often think of an idea because you're not stuck in the middle of that problem. Right. You've changed the environment and it gives you a perspective. Mm -hmm. and, and going back to the theme, you come back and challenge your own idea. Hmm. When you have a different perspective, when you step back, I call yeah. it slowing down to speed up. 
you've got a you've got a step away. Uh, the idea of a slow lap is is perfectly aligned with this in in order to come back stronger and faster. Uh, you've you've worked at some other amazing companies, uh, Blockbuster, Papa John's. If you could just briefly share, what was the main takeaway you 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 learned from your experience at Blockbuster, particularly as the video rental world was so massively disrupted by video on demand and streaming and Netflix? What was the big idea that you took away from that that you'll never forget? Well, I, I think firstly, Blockbuster is a great company. I learned so much, um, and and. You know, we did a lot of things right. We migrated from VHS tapes to DVD. Mm-hmm. We introduced games and made it really strong. Um, and I think we we missed Netflix start. We caught up with them. And after I left and after my boss left, unfortunately, the company took a different direction and went back to focusing on stores rather than the convenience of the Internet and uh, the rental by mail, as it was at the time, that mm-hmm. Netflix had, and Reed Hastings built a fantastic company. Uh, we could have bought that for fifty million. It's now worth. Last time I looked, about one hundred and sixty billion. So, oh, wow. congratulations to them. We missed an opportunity. But I think the lesson, which was your question, mm-hmm. two or three things: you constantly have to challenge what you're doing. You constantly have to anticipate. And you set up processes to anticipate. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one of the things it says in the checkbook of my book, right mm-hmm. at the end, does your company ever look at its own demise? What would cause the, the demise of your company? Great question. It is. And, 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 you know, you have to say, what could happen that we don't exist anymore? And I think we failed to do that at Blockbuster. As I say, we, we overcame so many different technologies that came at us. And and we were making true progress when I left and then after I left um, on, on Blockbuster Online, which was very much like Netflix, but better because we integrated the stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then later management after I'd left, um, I think, took their focus off that, which is unfortunate. I think Blockbuster today would still be Blockbuster would still be here today. In fact, I think they're down to one store that happens to be in Oregon. Um hmm. It would still be here today. It's a great brand. People love going there. And I sometimes do uh, speeches to schools. I'm always impressed that the now 14, 15-year-olds I talk to still remember Blockbuster. I think in a year's time, they won't. Hmm. So I always reference them back to the movie The Holiday with a nice Blockbuster segment. (laughs) So so not enough challenge, ultimately. the, The importance of continuing to challenge yourself and to look to what might well, destroy you. All right, let's talk about Papa John's, uh, who have lately been in the news for all kinds of bad reasons. What's your take on what's happening at Papa John's these days, Nigel? Well, you know, I was there for four years as CEO. Uh, I think we did some great things. We really focused the business on online pizza ordering, and I, I tried to learn from what I did at blockbuster and what we failed to do so we were trying to anticipate that the convenience of online pizza ordering will be huge mm-hmm. we moved we moved it from five to thirty percent while i was there and that's after incredible I left it's, it's con- continued to grow it's about 65 percent now so people like that convenience uh i tried to build in the culture i described earlier um now i've been gone 10 years and a lot of stuff has happened i think it's most unfortunate john Schneider built a great company um, it truly 
does it's all about better ingredients better pizza i feel very sad for the people there i feel very sad for the franchisees who've reached out to me um but i think you know what you end up with is a dysfunctional situation and that's not good for anyone i mean you, you've got a lot of people challenging each other in public which is not good for mm-hmm. anyone and and some of the comments are pretty disparaging <laughs> about each other so i don't think that's good so i just hope it gets resolved um i think uh, obviously you know a lot of people are trying to work with the board i don't want to get into who's right and who's wrong i just hope that the culture of success that we had when i was there can be recovered and papa john's can get back to being a great pizza company it is sad for the people there if you could just give us a feel for the kinds of things that you're hearing from your former colleagues there like what is it like to be in that setting now where there's just this very public strife over highly charged political issues that are i'm sure uh getting in the way of everyday life I think all I'd say is the franchisees tell me they're very confused, they're very disappointed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, you can't think about great business solutions, which is what the Challenge Culture is about, if you're constantly reading stuff in the press uh, and you don't know who's right and who's wrong. I mean, it must be very distracting. And and, and to be successful, you need to concentrate. Um, I mean, Mm -hmm. the the current CEO is constantly being (laughs) criticized uh, and, and really... It's probably an example of challenge in the wrong way. Just you know, is disparaging challenge rather than the kind of civil dialogue that uh, I've encouraged. So I think it's very difficult for the people that I've spoken to there. I haven't actually spoken to many employees, but I've heard from franchisees. So what what would the lessons of the challenge culture speak to in today's environment? Say at Papa John's, if if you could offer a word of advice to the to the people in, embroiled in, in in the controversy there, what would you tell them? Well, I think I'd say the following. I think there's three groups involved in this. It's the board, it's the management, and it's the franchisees. This is a strong franchise organization with a fantastic brand. Uh, I would encourage them that, to come together because... Now's the time they need to unite. And by coming together, they would play out the challenge culture in action. They would sit down. They'd sit down for two or three days and say, what do we need to do to get the brand back to where it used to be? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it won, I think it was 11 times in a row, the American Customer Satisfaction Index uh, number one position for pizza. Um, franchisees have excellent store economics. So you need to get everyone in the room and come up with a game plan that everyone understands. Now, in the franchising business, sometimes that's difficult because sometimes franchisees see their profitability as conflicting with the profitability uh, of the company. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you need to get all these issues out on the table and find ways to bridge those issues. So that would be the advice I would give. And it'd be, to be brutally honest, the advice I'd give in any situation because I think by clearly articulating issues in a civil and positive way, it doesn't mean you can't be enthusiastic and passionate. I, I think you get out all the issues on, onto the table. And yet it's, it's so increasingly hard to do that in today's environment uh, of, of so much uh, you know, ad hominem attacks 
and and now I'm speaking beyond Papa John's uh, and into the you know the political climate in the U.S. and Europe around the world. It's it's harder and harder for us to see possibilities for real civil dialogue where reasonable people can disagree. Uh, I, I'm asking you to get a little philosophical here, Nigel. So, uh, what what's your take on how what you've written about can perhaps contribute to a bit more healing in the world in terms of bringing people together and enabling them to have civil arguments about differences of perspective. Well, I guess it's a good week to talk about that because there's a lot of discussion. <laughs> right, and we have about there. a minute. So Yeah, okay. So, I mean, John, John McCain talked about it, about reaching across the aisle. Uh, uh, I guess the week that Aretha Franklin dies, you have respect, and I think that that's a word that's forgotten. Uh, people can have different opinions, but see if they can air those opinions and then bridge it. So my mm-hmm. book talks a lot about pluralism. In other words, you have one set of views, one set of goals, recognized as a gap. How do you bridge those gaps? The role of a leader is to bridge the gap. And, and I truly mm-hmm. believe that thinking, that open communication can come up with solutions that could be better for everyone. But I'm realistic. You know, we live in a highly politicized world. The differences seem to be growing. I think you have to constantly find ways of... By the way, it's not just the two different parties. Mm -hmm. It's within the parties. Of course. You know, they're split. So I think, you know, you have to try and bridge as hard as you can get. But I don't think there's a panacea for it. You just have to keep working hard at it. Well, uh, you're right. That is another week's conversation. Perhaps we can get you back to talk about that at some other occasion. But for now, we are going to have to wrap up. I have one more question for you, uh, and that is about compassion. How do you bring compassion to your working life? Um, I think, you know, unfortunately in our in a business like ours and all the businesses I've been involved in, from Burger King to Blockbuster, Papa John's, um, unfortunately things happen all the time, things happen in our stores, and I think you have to show the human side. You know, you have to go to, unfortunately, funerals, mm-hmm. you have to show letters, um, I mean, I think President Obama sh- showed and President Bush immense empathy and mm-hmm. compassion when they visited all the bodies coming back from the wars around the world. Um, I think it's the demonstration, the, the visual and very clear demonstration of compassion that's important. And 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 there's another book I've forgotten the author's name right now. Give and take. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember, life is about giving. Life isn't about taking. Nigel, thank you so much for joining us in the conversation tonight. How can listeners find out more about your work and your book? Um, well, the the book is going to be out for sale on September the 18th. Um, I'll be appearing at various booksellers around the country. Uh, you obviously have Amazon.com to, to get the audio book or the hardcover or the uh, paperback or... Uh, I guess some people may even hear this overseas. So it's also been released in the UK and later on in Korea. So uh, we're fortunate we've got a very broad spread. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, I look forward to people buying the book and reading it. The Challenge Culture, why the most successful organizations run on pushback. Nigel Travis, thank you so much. Thank you very much, too.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nigel Travis, executive chairman of Duncan Brands and owner of Leighton Orient Football Club. So here's an invitation for you, a challenge for you to challenge yourself today and ask yourself, as Nigel suggests, simply this, what went well and what could you improve? And if you're up for a further step, then branch out to someone at work or maybe someone in your family or a friend, someone you trust and whom you think would be open to something like this, someone friendly, as Nigel says, and ask him or her to challenge you. I'd love to hear about what you discover if you try this. So get in touch with me directly at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter at Stu Friedman. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.